Thanks for downloading this podcast from RNIB Connect Radio. Now, the Argus 2 retinal prosthesis system created by Second Sight Medical Products, Inc., based in the USA, was developed to restore a kind of vision to patients blinded as a result of retinitis pigmentosa or outer retinal degeneration. A clinical trial was initiated in 2006 to study the long-term safety and efficiency of the Argus 2 system in patients with little or no light perception resulting from end-stage RP. More information on the success of the device is now available and I'm joined by Lyndon De Cruz from Moorfields Eye Hospital to talk about it. So, Lyndon, thank you very much for joining with us. Can you tell us, firstly, how the device actually works, please? Yes, the device, um, contrary to what a lot of people think with the term bionic eye, there's components that are external to the eye, consisting of a pair of glasses with a video camera, a small computer the size of uh, a cigarette packet, which is worn in a pocket or around a strap, and then a device inside the eye, which is not connected at all to the external parts. And that uh, device inside the eye has a receiver for radio frequency telemetry, so it's a Wi-Fi or a wireless signal sent to the eye, and an electrode panel which stimulates the residual retinal nerves in a particular pattern. And the way it works is the video camera essentially sees what the patient is looking at. The video signal or the video picture is turned into a pattern of electrical signals and that pattern of electrical signals is sent wirelessly to the device inside the eye and it stimulates the retina in that pattern and all of that happens in real time so whatever the shape of whatever you're looking at is transmitted to a electrode panel pattern and that pattern is sent through and that pattern is stimulated onto the residual retinal nerves and that's what generates the formed vision That sounds fantastic. Can you tell us, Lyndon, how many patients took part in the trial and do they all still have uh, a working implant? 30 patients took part in the original feasibility trial, which is what we're currently reporting the five-year safety and performance results on. But another almost 150 or more patients have been implanted worldwide. So the 30 we report on are the ones in the formal feasibility study. And at at least five years, and the patients range from five to eight and a half years after their implantation, 24 of the original 30 still have a functioning device in their eye. Uh, In terms of, you might say, what happened to the other six, two of the devices themselves stopped working, mainly because we feel there's been a breakdown in the connection, the wireless connection, possibly due to damage to some of the components during the original surgery. Three devices had to be removed, not because they didn't work, but because of complications of the surgery and exposure of the device and a fear of infection. And unfortunately, one patient died, nothing to do with the device itself, during the trial. So 24 patients still have the device inside their eye and the device is still working at at least five years. That sounds fantastic then for the trials. This is maybe a difficult question, Lyndon, but can you tell us really what kind of vision was obtained by those who took part in the trial? Yeah, I think this is an important question to ask and an important question to try and answer in that the vision they get is not a blurry or pixelated or 
poor form of the original vision they had or what sighted patients would feel is vision, they get patterns or pictures made up of colored or not colored lights, but lights uh, in their visual space. So if they were looking at an object which was square, there would be a square outlined light in front of them. This is a very different quality of vision and it lacks other features that many of the sighted public take for granted like depth and position and how big it is because of all of these things are relative to other things you see. So it's quite a rudimentary type of vision in terms of what you can make out, but it's also a very different quality of vision. And what happens is it's visual, so you don't need to touch the object. You can see its shape or you can see that there's an object there. But its nature is very different, and the patients learn to interpret these shapes to identify what it is they see. And things they see recurrently, they get very good at identifying visually uh, without touching it. Um, but what they don't see is what you and I might call a normal vision or a reduced form of normal vision. And so they have to learn a different type of vision and they have a different quality of vision to what they had before they lost it. Well, of course, as you say, there is actual vision there, which is a fantastic thing for most of the patients. If you sum it up, Lyndon, how successful would you say the trials were overall? Well, there are different aspects of this. I think personally it's been a fantastic success mainly because this was a feasibility study, something to see if this was plausible at all. And what it turned into is a study which demonstrated it was safe, that the devices were stable, that the patients obtained some useful vision, and it went on to get FDA approval and CE marking, regulatory approval worldwide, and it started to be implanted. So in terms of outcome and success, it's really gone further than we might have hoped and further than we might have expected in terms of outcome. And so we're, I find that an incredible thing that this sort of what would be called a science fiction device is actually going into people, turned out to be safe and successful, and went on to get regulatory permission when this was set out to be just a feasibility study of it working at all. Having said that, the questions are now coming out. Now that we have a device, it's going into many, many people, and certainly in the post-trial marketplace where people are actually putting these devices in, and the number is heading out towards 200. What we're trying to find out now is how useful it is to patients. The question of whether the device works, whether the device is safe, whether the device continues to work over a reasonable length of time, these questions are starting to be answered already. And we move on to the next thing, which is people's real question is, is, is it useful for the patient? Do the patients like what they see? Do they find it useful? Do they use the device often? And this is a much harder question to answer because the feasibility study was dominated by safety, function, efficacy. And if you read the paper, it's dominated by those sorts of things, not about patient-derived outcomes, what the patient think of it. And in this post-trial scenario now where we've got many many more people going to the trial we'll start to answer that second question not just was the device successful and stable and safe but start to answer questions about how patients use it whether it's useful in their life what proportion of patients find it useful how often they use it and questions which i think are more interesting to the public in general and also to the patients who might need or use this device in the future and have you set yourself a, a, a time scale of any kind to actually find the answers to the various questions that you posed there and also to look ahead towards the future? The time scale of finding out, given this number of devices that's gone into people, over the next two to three years, I would suspect we'd have a good 
quality of data from a large number of people in in large number of countries to start to answer some of those questions of usefulness to patients, how they use it, how they find it themselves. And also without the burden, which is the trial had of showing to the regulators issues of safety, it allows to focus all of the studies and all of the questioning and all of the investigations on patient outcomes rather than on, I guess, scientific and regulatory outcomes. So I would hope that within the next two to three years, you start to see more interesting papers on patient outcomes, patient-generated usefulness, uh, and we start to get early answers to those questions. What we also hope to do, and certainly we are looking to restart a trial at Moorfields, is to look at patients with slightly better vision at the time of being implanted. Because it was a regulatory study, we chose people at the worst end of the spectrum, patients who had complete loss of vision or had bare light perception and had been in this position for sometimes 5 to 15 years. This was really a safety study, and so we didn't want to cause any harm, so we chose people who were very poor. We're now looking at trialing the device in people who have slightly more vision but are clearly declining to see if we get an even better result when we implant the device earlier. And also, because we already have a safety profile, the outcome data will be dominated by training and looking at patient-based outcomes and function-based outcomes. And so we hope within a local trial, we might start to answer those questions formally by looking for them as the primary outcome rather than what they were in the original study, a secondary outcome. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Linda, a final question for you. If people are listening to this and are interested, how can they learn more about the Argus 2? Well, most of these trials, when we come to the point of recruiting, we organise information days with the RP Fighting Blindness, uh, sometimes the Macular Disease Society and the RNIB, and we find that that's the fairest and most open way of informing people. And most people who are part of or are associated with these with these organisations get emailed the newsletters, and we include these trials that they may be starting, uh, and then those patients can be referred into more fields and we will assess them at that time. These trials haven't started. We're still formulating the trial and getting the regulatory permission for the new trials. Uh, and so there's nothing to ring up for now. But as soon as we're in that position, we usually publicize these trials in terms of information days through the respective organizations where most people have access to, to them. And then if they are within the framework of the trial, the entrance requirements. They can be referred in by their GP or other physicians who are looking after them. Well, thank you very much for talking with us and fully explaining where you are with the uh, Argus 2 retinal prosthesis system. Lyndon De Cruz from Moorfields Eye Hospital, thank you for talking with us here on RNIB Connect Radio. Pleasure. For more downloads like these, visit rnibconnectradio.org.uk slash podcasts.